Welcome to Wellbeing. I'm Dr. Virginia Reid. And this morning I thought, since there are a few infectious diseases around at the moment, as per usual, we would speak to an expert in the field, Dr. John Ferguson. Uh, your position is staff specialist at the John Hunter in infectious diseases, I believe? That's right. What sort of specialist training does an infectious diseases doctor do? Uh, well, you do the basic medical degree and then you do a physician's training, which takes five years of of training in hospitals, learning about a particular specialty area. In my case, it was infectious diseases. But you start with the entire compass of medicine first. Right. And what attracted you to infectious diseases? Oh, I spent some time up in Papua New Guinea and then mm. later in Africa, and that sort of uh, got me interested in tropical diseases, all the odd infections that occur in the tropics. and. Uh, I moved from that into microbiology and um, came back to Australia and that seemed to be the natural thing to do. Right. So that would have held you in good stead, I suppose, to know about some of the mosquito-borne diseases because they have a fair few of those in Papua New Guinea, don't they? Yes, yeah, certainly things like malaria and filariasis, elephantiasis, yes. Recently I've been seeing a bit of Ross River fever in a couple of my patients. Is that something that um, is becoming more common in this region? Well, Ross River and the related Wanbama forest, it's, it's, it's an endemic disease to Australia that uh, appears every year, in the beginning part of the year. And, and uh, certainly this year seems to be a, a big year for Ross River, with um, something like, um, I think, in the Hunter, New England area, we've had 111 cases year to date this year, compared to 27 in the same period last year, so mm. it is a big year. And those would be our main mosquito-borne diseases in Australia. So we don't see malaria as an endemic disease, certainly? Uh, we have mosquitoes that could transmit malaria, and there have been um, you know, episodes of malarial transmission in the Torres Strait and just below that, but uh, the concentration of humans required to maintain malaria there is not thought to be high enough, so we're lucky. Right. So you have to have a concentration of humans to create a pool, do you? Well, in the case of malaria, the humans form a, an essential reservoir of the, the beast, right. of the virus. But uh, with Ross River, we believe there might be a reservoir in, in marsupials, large marsupials like kangaroos and so on. So that's probably why it remains endemic in New South Wales and Queensland and so on. And do you see more of Ross River in New South Wales or in Queensland? You see it in Victoria too, don't you? Yes. Uh, well, the Ross River is actually a river near Townsville, and that was where it was originally described. I think Queensland has quite considerable rates of Ross River. The related one, Barma Forest, is, is named after a forest in Victoria, I believe, in northern Victoria, so mm. it came from there. But um, both these viruses occur around Australia. Right, and we don't have a particularly um, bad mob of them here. We are as badly off as anywhere else. I, th I think this this year is a big year for Ross River on the east coast. On the east coast, yeah. yeah. Any idea why? Uh, it's difficult to know. Uh, um, people do express concern about global warming and its effect on mosquito numbers and their mm. transmission. Mm. And, uh, I guess the jury's out on that at present. Mm. Um, we do expect a lot of these diseases to change their geographical distribution as, as uh, global warming occurs and there's lots of complex interactions that occur. Mm. Um, so we, we 
won't won't know that for a few years to come. I'd say. Yeah, and is dengue fever an issue? Well, dengue's a big issue in the um, South Pacific and and Southeast Asia, right. and uh, certainly has uh, been an issue in in northern Queensland, um, with large outbreaks occurring there. And I think the range of dengue fever is, you know, the, the geographical range is going to extend as uh, global climate changes. Right. But we don't have it down here. At the moment, we don't. We haven't had any cases in the Hunter. No. That's a relief. I've had dengue. It's not pleasant. Suppose we should describe what say Ross River would look like what sort of symptoms do people normally complain of well it's usually a, a systemic illness well first of all it can can be asymptomatic in some people but um, about half people get a, a fever with uh, malaise and, and sometimes a rash and it has a prominent symptom of uh, joint involvement with uh, aching and, and sort of like an arthritis pain in many joints uh, that can be persistent in some people. Most people recover within within a month, but mm-hmm. um, uh, it, it can persist in some for, for many months. And uh, the reason for that is is uncertain. It, it might be that the virus is hanging around, it, or it might be a, an immune reaction to the virus that's uh, just uh, kicking on. Mm. Inappropriate. Mm. And how long after you're bitten do you get your symptoms? It's generally uh, quite uh, a short incubation period, up, up to a week, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, then after symptoms appear, we can do a blood test looking for antibodies against the virus, but uh, that won't become positive for at least a week after the symptoms start mm. and uh, can remain positive then for several months. Right. Um, so it's an indirect evidence that we use, the antibody test. Mm. Yeah, that's a bit of a trick, isn't it? Because when you're in the acute phase, it's not likely to be positive in the feverish sort of arthritic, initial arthritic fever sort yes. of stage. Yeah, yeah, that's a bit of a trick I've found for some of my patients. And Barma Forest is similar? Yes, said to be a bit milder than Ross River disease. Right. Uh, and uh, it really has the same range of symptoms, prominent joint involvement and... Um, Know, occasional fever. Both, both diseases are not always associated with fever. Right. So you can just get the arthritis and the rash and not even the rash necessarily. Yes. Right. Okay. And people sort of get bitten a lot by mosquitoes so it's only the odd and occasional little character that's carrying the virus? Yes. <laughs> it's, it's Russian roulette with mosquitoes. Right. Yes. Um, uh, and probably a, you know, a low proportion of mosquitoes are actually infectious at any one time. Right. Um, so some sort of avoidance of mosquitoes or use of repellents is, is a very effective means of uh, preventing, uh, you know, transmission of this virus. Mm. I know that with malaria, when you go overseas, they advise that you sleep under a net impregnated with D because it markedly decreases the incidence of malaria. I suppose if we, this sort of thing continues, we're going to have to advise people to be doing similar. Yes, and I think um, I think the transmission and, and mosquito numbers sort of vary quite considerably between you know, just small areas. Mm. And certainly, if you're living in a very mosquito-prone area, it's probably a good idea to buy a mosquito net and um, mm. just take a bit more care with uh, use of repellents over the, the peak season for, for these viruses. 
You seem tend to see it more in adults than children too, don't you? Yes. Well, the the, the children are no doubt getting infected, but right. uh, with a lot of virus diseases, children remain uh, without symptoms and, and they mm. develop immunity. They just seem to be better suited to to coping with these infections without developing symptoms. Yeah, your immunity changes as you get older. That's mm. true. You're listening to Wellbeing. I'm Dr. Virginia Reid and I'm discussing infectious diseases, particularly the arboviruses or mosquito-borne viruses with Dr. John Ferguson. So John, it gets a bit confusing I suppose at this time of year because this is the beginning really of the flu season, isn't it, traditionally? Yes, uh, although flu is not a mosquito-borne disease. Of no, of course. It's a human uh, and mammalian virus. Um, we generally start to see a bit of flu from June, there's the odd case earlier in the year, um, particularly in travellers coming coming from the northern hemisphere. But it's generally something we see between June and November. June to November, and who is particularly prone to the flu virus? Uh, well, in basic terms, the very young and very old get most of the disease, but uh, there's a significant proportion of adults and so on that have um, underlying illnesses that make them prone to severe flu. Um, it might be a pregnant woman, it might be someone with uh, chronic lung disease um, such as asthma mm. um, and uh, those people particularly are uh, advised to avoid getting the flu or to be vaccinated. And what does it prevent? Well each year the vaccine is made up of three different strains that have been circulating usually in the northern hemisphere because that precedes our flu season. And so they decide on some strains that uh, are likely to be close to the ones that will be circulating in Australia. They're, they're made up into a vaccine. Um, they're killed virus strains, so they can't give you the flu, mm. but they stimulate an antibody immunity um, that is pretty good. It, it provides you know, 80 to 90% protection in, in well adults, and um, uh, it's not so good in the elderly, but... Uh, it's a very valuable protection against the circulating flu strains. Um, I mean, each year we probably run the risk of around 10% of, of catching the flu, uh, varies season to season. And um, those who catch the flu, it's not just a minor illness, it's usually something that uh, lays you up for a week with quite significant fever and cough and uh, malaise. Uh, it's not really not something to wish on your worst enemy. Mm. So people come in saying, I've got the flu, generally speaking, if they're walking about and fairly hale and hearty and just got a cough and a runny nose, etc., it's not the flu. Yes, it's difficult, isn't it, uh, that there are a large number of other respiratory viruses that cause you know, the common cold and um, you know, cause you to be ill for three or four days. But uh, really, the influenza virus, uh, once it takes hold, uh, gives people quite persistent fever and cough um, they can remain unwell, generally unwell, for you know seven to ten days. Um, young children again are frequently asymptomatic with the flu, but uh, some some children do get seriously ill and have to be admitted to hospital with things like bronchiolitis. So um, it's important to distinguish what gets called as the flu from actual influenza, which is a more serious illness. Right, and people sometimes suggest that they don't want the flu vax again because they develop the flu 10 days to two weeks after the vaccination it seems to me 
I don't know that it's the flu, but they do report upper respiratory symptoms. Do you have any data at all on whether the flu vaccination actually causes any side effects like that? Well, it does cause side effects. The, the commonest thing is, a, is local soreness at the injection site. Mm. That probably occurs in about a third. Um, the systemic reactions that you're talking about are only supposed to occur in, in less than 5% of people who receive the vaccine, and they generally last for two to three days. So it, it uh, might be a, a fever reaction, uh, uh, feeling a bit tired. It's not, not uh, quite like actual flu, um, there's no flu virus on board. It's, mm. it's really an immune reaction to the virus. It probably indicates that you've you've developed a good reaction that's going to protect you uh, more solidly in the future. Um, I might say that occasionally they do get the, the the sort of vaccine wrong, and and the vaccine may not match the circulating strains, and that might be another reason why someone could still get the flu even though they've had the vaccination. Mm, okay, so the. Hopefully they they won't do that too often. That's been the case so far that they p- seem to pick what we're going to get. It's it's not too often, but um, as you know, um, we have uh, occasions when a new strain emerges, a, mm. a, what we call a pandemic strain. The last occasion was in 1968, and that was a new strain that uh, not many people had been exposed to in the past, so it wasn't in the vaccine, and people didn't have immunity, so. It, uh, when, when these strains emerge, they they travel like wildfire around the world, causing uh, quite serious illness in a large number of people. Mm, I guess that's what we're frightened of with this avian flu. Quite possibly, um, although at the moment we've got a, a bird virus that's uh, been transmitting in the bird population since 2004, and steadily changing and becoming a little little stronger and more able to cause disease in in mammals and uh, a wider range of birds and uh, continuing to transmit in the wild bird population. So there's, there's been great concern that that bird flu virus might change further or mutate further to be easily transmissible in humans. Of course, there have been mm. nearly 200 cases in humans, but uh, all of those, most of those, nearly all of them, have been acquired directly from birds or chicken meat and uh, not being transmitted between humans as yet. Um, but it's certainly a, a big worry that if, if such a strain which can cause disease becomes easily transmissible between humans, uh, then we've got uh, a pandemic situation. Hmm. And those are mostly been in third world countries, those cases? Yes, it's it's been in the countries particularly that... Uh, raise lots of chickens. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been associated particularly with domestic um, chicken raising, where people are living in close confines with their chickens um, and eating them, and perhaps uh, they, they, there are customs to do with uh, eating raw chicken or blood from chickens that have been associated, um, but also just contamination of that environment uh, has led to cases. Mm. Uh, so most of the cases have occurred in those environments. Um, Whereas, uh, say, in Australia, um, most of our chicken raising is done commercially and uh, we wouldn't be exposed to chicken viruses uh, easily. Okay. You're listening to Wellbeing and we're discussing influenza viruses and other infectious diseases with Dr John Ferguson. So, John, 
we in Australia are not probably going to be presented with the disease in our own chickens, although people are talking about it being in wild birds and that if you have, for example, ducks or live near a wild bird sanctuary, etc., you may be more at risk. Well, it's it's quite possible and probably will happen that uh, this avian strain will transmit to Australian birds. Um, Through migrating birds, migrating would it be? Migrating birds. Mm. There have been five occasions documented in the past when... when uh, bird strains have come in on migrating flocks. Um, uh, this particular avian flu? Not or this particular no. strain, okay. but other strains. Mm-hmm. It might be that this strain is just too uh, capable of causing disease in the in the shorebirds that, uh, that migrate to Australia, um, uh, such that, you know, if, if they're sick with the virus, they can't make the distance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't think we can uh, really know that. Um, and it's I know that in Australia they're keeping a watchful eye on, on wild bird populations and, and chicken populations for, for evidence of this virus. We are surveying for it? Yes, we are. Right. Um, I think more importantly is, is the surveillance of humans, though. Right. <laughs> because, uh, they're they're more, lo- more likely to travel than, than birds. Yes. And, uh, they're more likely to associate with each other. So in, in most parts... Um, humans are the ones that bring the, the new flu strains into Australia mm. the northern hemisphere and uh, so we need to have you know a high level of suspicion about uh, um, fever illness in return travelers uh, illness that could be flu uh, particularly if they've come from areas where there's a lot of the avian flu around mm. and um, do you know which areas they are I mean it expands doesn't it well it, yes it's expanded very considerably and, and You'll know that uh, areas of Russia and, and mm. most parts of northern Europe um, have wild bird populations that are infected. Mm. Um, so, but the human cases have come mainly from Asia, haven't they? Yes, Vietnam mm. and, and uh, China. Vietnam in particular, I think there's a doctor that's been treating a fair few of the cases, a Caucasian doctor, I think. Yes. And he's been lecturing lately, hasn't he, to say that he doesn't think it's going to get off the ground. You know, he doesn't perceive it as being such a major threat but still but uh, partly uh, you w- unless we test for flu um, yeah. regularly we won't detect the new strains yeah. and so I think even travellers coming from countries where there are no human cases we have to okay. keep, keep a level of still be vigilant and, uh, yeah. and, uh, test. Do we have any uh, tips on how to keep yourself less prone to flu? Any known sort of remedies? Well, of course, uh, avoiding catching it is, is, is an art, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and um, flu is generally transmitted sort of face-to-face contact, you know, what we call droplet spread, so talking right. face-to-face with someone who's infected or someone coughing in your face. Right. But the virus itself can also remain uh, on materials like tissues or surfaces for three to four days, and, and you can pick it up and transfer it to your eye or your mouth and get infected in that manner. So um, it's important for us to, uh, you know, watch when we cough to cover our mouth and, and when we use a tissue to clean our hands after, after using a tissue to dispose of infected tissues uh, with care so we don't put others at danger. Uh, it might be the case that wearing a mask when you've got an infection is an important way of preventing its spread. Not going to work when one has 
one of these infections is also important, I think. Mm. What about hand washing? Yes, hand washing or, or cleaning the hands with an alcohol gel is a good way of, of uh, removing the virus from your skin. Mm. And, uh, you know, uh, your, your hands can be a very easy way of transferring a virus like flu to another person. There's been some pretty good studies on that, hasn't there, to mm. sort of actually count, measure. I believe there's a campaign at the moment to get doctors to wash their hands. Is that true? <laughs> yes, not so much based around flu, but no. uh, it might have an advantage there. Uh, we're, we're mostly concerned about the transmission of things like MRSA, which is a golden staff in hospitals. Right. And we believe that uh, around 80% of transmission is due to carriage on, on hands of healthcare workers. Right. Uh, so carrying this, this golden staff between patients. And uh, to prevent that from occurring, we need healthcare workers to, uh, most importantly, clean their hands prior to touching a patient. Mm. going to a patient and also afterwards. Mm. Yeah, it's a pretty um, obvious sort of thing, but sometimes I think in this day and age we forget yes, the obvious things. Yes, taught you. Yes, or, or Louis Pasteur tried to teach us, I suppose. That's really where this stuff came from, wasn't it? Yes, well, the first uh, gentleman was supposedly Semmelweis in yes. the 1800s, who mm. was an Austrian physician uh, who uh, recognised that his mothers were dying Yes, and, and uh, they were dying. Perpetual fever. Mm. Yes, uh, mm. and he but they they were Jenner and, and he were totally poo pooed when they first came up with that uh, concept. Yep. Totally ostracised. Mm. Jenner had to actually take, didn't he, the handle from the well to stop people from drinking from the contaminated well. Yes. And you can imagine they weren't very happy. They practically got lynched. <laughs> but uh, that's infectious diseases. You probably know about that concept, do you? Of getting lynched for spreading information. <laughs> of the, um, I can imagine if you start asking patients to tell healthcare workers to wash their hands before they touch them, you might be lynched. <laughs> uh, well, look, I think this day and age we expect um, patients to uh, be aware of what's going on with their health, and, mm, and I, I agree. think this is a, an important area. Uh, I, I know there's a lot of community awareness already about the importance of hygiene in hospitals. We know that patients in hospitals are particularly susceptible. They, they might have intravenous devices in them. They, they have, uh, their immune systems are down. Mm. Um, so we have to protect them. Mm. And a key protective thing is, is cleaning hands before attending mm. to them and, and other things. And just people, I suppose, when they're at home too, changing dressings and things, it's a good basic uh, care. Yes. And with the flu, if they are unwell. I, I think maybe a few people, I, I, you know, will be more conscious now if I do have a um, cold or something of washing my hands. I've always known about disposing tissues and things. But yeah, that's important. And what about things like, um, you know, keeping up a good vitamin intake, etc.? Oh, look, I think, uh, yes, keeping a uh, reasonable exercise pattern and, and mm. uh, diet all ways in which we keep our immune system healthy. Um, I might say that infectious diseases, uh, you know, bacteria and viruses are, are key things that prime our immune systems and make yes. them healthy in the first place. So yes. we certainly don't want to grow up in a way that doesn't expose us to these things. But uh, as has been shown by the children, not mm. getting 
sick when they have virus infections. That that's the key time when when people are best exposed to uh, bacteria and viruses. Mm. We go on being exposed through life, but uh, it, it doesn't do to be obsessive in the home environment about cleanliness. Um, we don't want. No, they say that's why we've got more asthma, isn't it? Yes. No, so so use of disinfectants in the home is unnecessary. Mm. Uh, we do need to use them in hospitals because we have nasty, more aggressive sort of bacteria there that uh, we want to uh, reduce the transmission of. But um, yeah, certainly in the home, it's it's good for us to be living alongside these uh, bugs. Hmm. But not in excessive quantities. No. That's the key, no, really, yeah. isn't it? And there are, there are certain things to do with food preparation. We don't want to hmm. expose ourselves to the bacteria that, that are on raw chickens there might be salmonella or campylobacter so all of those hygiene measures to do with um, not mixing uncooked meats with cooked meats mm. are important well it's always good to talk about infectious diseases <laughs> uh, I suppose you do a lot of that uh, talking about it yes <laughs> yes and uh, uh, I guess uh, dealing with patients um, yeah I mean it's it's something that we see an awful lot less of than you know even 20 30 years ago probably yeah, and we get a bit complacent we've got tremendous advantages living in australia with the we fund a range of vaccines that pre prevent some very key diseases mm. uh, that, that cause uh, a very large amount of problem in, in the third world and overseas mm. um, and we've got good water and good food which, yes. which are crucial mm. and we don't have much malnutrition so all of the things stacked in our favour. Absolutely, the lucky country. Mm. <laughs> Thank you very much for your time today. Much appreciated. It's a pleasure. You've been listening to Wellbeing with Dr Virginia Reid, speaking with Dr John Ferguson, infectious diseases specialist from the John Hunter. All of us here at Wellbeing would like to say that we hope that infectious diseases stay away and we wish you well.